I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Living in New York, I'm noticing the shift of seasons. Like summer is beginning at a later time. It's extending into fall. The contrast with the four seasons is not as rampant. So if you're in denial about the changes, you you kind of just, in my opinion, you have to wake up because this is happening. Whether you know, even if you don't have a natural disaster hitting your city, there are these other subtle changes with the shift in seasons. This is really impacting us. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you're listening to Spaces Podcast Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Today, I have a really good conversation for you. I speak with Farah Kadir. If you're engaged in architecture on Instagram, you've probably seen her and know her as Renewable Farah. She is a licensed public sector architect and lead accredited professional based in New York City, specializing in building energy efficiency and green building technical standards. Listening back to this conversation, I was shocked by how much we got through. We discussed her role as being a public sector architect, some things to look out for if you wanted to go down that path, both the public's and industry's acceptance of energy changes, conditions of policy, particularly in this political environment, why and how to get involved in climate action, sustainability impacts on the job market. And one of the interesting notes that came up was talking about some of the shortcomings of lead and well rating systems or how they present themselves to the public. And a very interesting and simple alternative that Farah mentions that they have enacted in New York. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Farah Kadir. Mm-hmm. 
Kira, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me here, Demetrius. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. We've already had a, a brief conversation, but it was not in ideal conditions. We did the live conversation at the AIA conference, people walking around and music blaring in the background. So it wasn't ideal, but I'm glad to get you back here and have a, a more in-depth conversation. So I wanted to particularly get you in to talk with you about your role in the public sector. Haven't really had too many, if any, people on a show that have talked about uh, the public sector and architecture in the public sector. Can you share a little bit about your role and give our listeners a little bit of insight into that? Yeah, I'm happy to share that experience, especially because it's one that, as you sort of imply, it's not the most common. So I have worked for city government agencies for the last 10 years. This year marks a decade, and I've worked for several agencies, um, the Department of Design and Construction in New York, the Buildings Department, and currently the School Construction Authority. And my work has revolved around, as you mentioned, sustainability standards and compliance. At the Buildings Department, I served in the role as an Energy Code Plans Examiner, and in my current role, I do a lot of technical standards work. While I've been in the design and survey side for a little bit, I really focused my career on the standards and regulation and compliance side, and I just found that I've enjoyed it so much because the standards are updating constantly, and with the advent of technology and the conversation that's going on in the profession and you have so many people lobbying for all sorts of updates. Like It's a really exciting time to be on the compliance side. But I am very much more familiar with green building certification programs and the energy codes. And while my experience is mostly in New York, a lot of what we do sets trends for other cities in the country. And so things that we do here, it's, it's fun because we get to experiment with all different building types as far as code updates go. And so what we see here can serve as an example or can be replicated in other parts of the country. But of course, there are other larger cities across the country doing amazing things for sustainability as well. And the standards just continue to update. Yeah, we represent probably the two uh, most aggressive states. Uh, I'm in California, you're in New York. So you're on the leading edge. Um, how, you know, because I hear a lot of sort of traditionalists, older people in the industry um, complaining about the aggressive changes in the energy and what it's doing to uh, building costs. How are you seeing that play out in New York? Is it something similar or are people pretty on board with the aggressive changes that are happening? That's a really interesting question, one that I've never been asked before, so I'm glad you brought it up. You know, it's funny because codes in essence, they're minimum baseline standards, so they shouldn't come as a shock to anyone. That's where the industry is trending anyway. Like This is minimum performance. But what's happening now is because energy modeling and performance-based compliance paths are becoming more and more the trend and required, and because green building certification programs are popping up and also becoming more aggressive, there's sort of this play between code and these voluntary certification programs that are driving each other and they're pushing each other. And I think New York is very accustomed to those changes. And of course, when you have a new code cycle, you have pushback from the industry. There's always a political struggle between the lobbyists and real estate and developers and then the design professionals and then the general public. And the general public is not, in my experience, typically aware of these sorts of changes. It's really 
the architect that needs to educate them. And you and I had gotten into this conversation at AIA yeah. where there's like this huge knowledge gap. But there's sort of a power struggle between all of these different players. But because you have that struggle, I think everyone's pushing each other to advance, if that makes any sense. There's a high standard already. And so everyone's going to keep pushing to that. Yeah. Speaking of policy, we're getting to this a little bit earlier than I thought, but how are you feeling about current conditions or or environment around policy? Are you feeling motivated, depressed? Because there's some, some things happening right now on a federal level that are kind of pulling in both directions. Uh, where Where is your head at right now? I will say, at the risk of sounding a little contentious, but with the previous political administration, I was feeling some sort of a depression just because there were a lot of rollbacks yeah. in that particular sector. You know, we had gone so many steps forward and they were all pushed back because of private interests that had nothing to do with climate change or the interests of the country as a whole, just in my respective opinion. Mm-hmm. But what's happening right now in the country is that a lot of cities are developing these climate action plans. So in the world of environmental sustainability, they're addressing the resiliency aspect. How do we protect our buildings from future climate risks and disasters? And that's become such a huge conversation. Um, In New York recently, they passed a law where our climate resiliency guidelines are going to become a requirement and they're piloting city projects right now for this. So it's a really big step forward because in a lot of jurisdictions, these climate resiliency plans are recommendations, not requirements. But now that we're seeing it become law, we're seeing more traction in the sustainability field. With renewables, I'm, you know, I still think that even though renewable energy is still the fastest growing source of energy, that percentage is so minuscule. It's under 10%. If you look at the numbers, I think it's like 5% or less or something of the country that's powered by renewables, which is, and I, I think it's specifically to solar. And then hydro has its own, wind has its own, but the numbers are so minuscule and It's a little discouraging, but whenever I become discouraged, I take a look at a lot of these really cool environmental organizations that have popped up and are doing their thing. Mm -hmm. You also see a lot of, in the private sector, a lot of firms that are championing sustainability. They're advocating for it and they're making it part of their branding. But that's good because when clients see that, it's going to become their priority too. So I think there are other venues and or other means through which sustainability is becoming more rampant. Um, even if the government is not necessarily there. And, you know, one thing I will say is that I think a lot of it has to do with the way our government is structured. There's a lot of division as far as state by state requirements. There isn't one federal standard that's really holding buildings in our profession accountable for emissions. It's the states and really the cities that are are taking charge. So that's where I feel really hopeful. Yeah. From your insight, how can people... Or a two-part question, why should people get involved and how can people get involved in sort of moving this sustainability football towards a more sustainable future? Yeah, I mean, it's going to impact our children and the future generation. And I get that sometimes we're in a bubble and we don't necessarily see all the risks, but living in New York, I'm noticing the shift of seasons. Like summer is beginning at a later time. It's extending into fall. The contrast with the four seasons is not as rampant. So if you're in denial about the changes, you you kind of just, in my opinion, you have to wake up because this is happening. Whether 
you know, even if you don't have a natural disaster hitting your city, there are these other subtle changes with the shift in seasons. This is really impacting us. So even if you don't care about some of those changes, they're, they're in our face. And, and the other reason, too, is it's there's a huge money savings with all this. And if you take a look at the life cycle cost of a lot of these improved measures for your own home, for your building, I mean, the, the economics pay out. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that alone should be reason enough for anyone, even just on the homeowner level, to make some changes and, and make a difference. And it's also just you feel really good about yourself when you've done something for the environment. Like I had organized a tree care event in my office a few weeks back and it was just such a good stress release to, to, to do something like that, just to nurture the environment and to learn little things and put those lessons into my daily life. It's just it's a it's a great stress outlet to literally take care of the environment, but to to know that you are making a difference and there are so many ways to do it. Yeah. Even just being in the environment is uh, a stress reliever. Right. Uh, so making sure to maintain those areas is critically important. I know every once in a while when I'm stressed out with work, I go hiking and just, you know, an hour yep. out completely changes my mood and perception on everything. So true, yeah. You mentioned uh, the economy. And one of the things that just kind of boggles my mind that people are not on board with this green movement is the amount of jobs that can be produced if there's more investment in this industry. Uh, I know everybody or I know there's people that want to hold on to the coal industry and gas and all these things. And we do need some of that to transition. But there are hundreds of thousands of jobs available if there is investment in this battery powered solar wind uh, all these different avenues to create renewable energy i mean we have these sources that will just not go away wind sun are just there being wasted right why not capture it any thoughts to that and arguments that you've heard and how have you refuted those yeah, I mean, I completely support that theory. They're, the job market's so diversified now. I mean, one example, you take a look at college programs or master programs that weren't there five, ten years ago that diversify into energy and project management and sustainability. You see so many different corporate sustainability sectors that are propping up in every company. So everyone is prioritizing this. And it's to the point where our profession is really spanning across other industries because the knowledge that we have, let's just say in sustainability, for instance, it expands to other fields. I think the job market's there. I I do agree that we're going to have to hold on to fossil fuels for a little bit in order to make that transition. But the numbers are so skewed right now where renewables is so far below fossil fuels and it doesn't make any sense because even the laws are, are trending towards it. For example, now in New York City, we've got this really cool building grading law. And so similar to those health sanitation grades that you see in restaurants, if you've ever noticed those A through F, mm-hmm. we've got one for energy. Interesting. So for buildings that are 25,000 square feet or greater on the lobby, you see a sign that has the building's energy score. And so obviously no one's going to want to live or <laughs> feel, you know, like a building is appealing if their apartment building is ranked an F or a D or even a C, right? Yeah. So this is like spurring like building owners and developers to make changes and they're going to trickle that down to their tenants. So whether we like it or not, these changes are going to have to occur. And guess what? If these building emissions are exceeded each year, they have to pay a fine. So this is tying into economics as well. It's only going to get more and more enforced. So 
It's just a matter of time. Yeah. I love that idea of the grades for uh, for the buildings because that visually puts pressure on these owners, yeah. like you said, because most people probably have heard of like lead and well is slowly starting to trickle in, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything to the average person to have those lead and, and well ratings. Um, it's sort of like a cherry on top of the ice cream. It doesn't convey the negative impacts of a building that does not have all of these uh, different features that benefit right. occupants. So I love that. Yeah, and the score is just so much easier to understand, right? Because yeah. like lead and well, like I don't even think my friends have ever noticed walking around the city like a lead stamp until I've like just like a nerd just pointed it out <laughs> to them and started explaining to them. But like everyone understands an A or an F. That's not hard to understand. Yeah. It's, it's wild and it's all like competition. So building managers see this and they see their neighboring building doing better. And it's, you know, it's funny. It's, it's similar to utility bills. So if you've ever noticed, and I don't know if your neighborhood does it, but mine does where they'll tell on the utility bill that your energy is better than your neighbor or it's worse performing than this neighbor. And it like kind of instill <laughs> like instills a sense of fear and competition and makes you want to do better. Yeah. That scoring is like the same thing, just on a larger scale. And I think that's what works. That's what drives change. You know, if you put up some fancy solar panels on your house, your neighbors are going to see that and want to look more technologically innovative or just want to keep up with the time. So yeah. I think it helps. Yeah, that's funny. That's a good point. I think uh, I have Southern California Edison, and I think they started to do that. If you ever use a Nest, I think the Nest gives you a report yes. in comparison to uh, neighbors. But yeah, it's funny that it does put that competitive spirit. And you're like, oh my God, right. I got to get my uh, energy a lot lower. <laughs> How are they right. much less than me? <laughs> It's the only other way that I feel other than codes and enforcing it is to just kind of hit home on, into that personal side yeah. within us. Let's take a break to share a little bit more about our sponsors. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want, but you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so that you can get back to doing what you love most. This series will help. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series created by acclaimed architect and business consultant Douglas Teeger, FAIA, aims to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew his practice from a solo practitioner to a 30-plus person firm then later sold his firm to do what he does today, help architects be more successful through Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth for years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Tiger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit, and when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free, and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass, at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass.
Demetrius here. As you may know, Spaces is part of Gable Media, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. Gable empowers AE professionals just like you to better serve the world. Now, through the strategic development of a brand new membership platform, we are eliminating the traditional industry boundaries and information bottlenecks that we all experience. But we need your help. Please go to gablemedia.com members and pick your top three initiatives that you believe will have the greatest impact on your growth, including a continuing education program, VIP access to expert forums and private Q&As, community boards, special freebies, and more. Go to gablemedia.com members and let us know what you'd like to see. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. And now let's get back to the conversation. So let's back up a little bit and talk about your role in the public sector as an architect. How was that transition out of traditional architecture into the public sector and and can you expand a little bit about that role? Yeah, so I've always been in the public sector, but when I initially started it was in the traditional role and then I got into standards. But I had had experience with the energy code, specifically with lighting in my initial job and I had done energy um, lighting retrofits and that that worked into a position as an energy code plans examiner at the buildings department. And I, when I started working at the New York City buildings department and reviewing all these different applications from, I don't know, let's say 2,000 square foot homes to 500,000 square foot commercial spaces. And I started to understand the importance of knowing the code to lay the foundation just for even my own professional knowledge. That's when I started getting super excited just to have that foundation. And then everything I kept reading up on the codes and interpreting the codes for different applications, to me, that was so interesting. When I was doing plan examination and working with other architects and engineers to get their plans approved or when I was issuing objections, a lot of our conversations were about 
either the equipment that's being specified to meet efficiency requirements or establishing the thermal boundary where is the continuous insulation in your walls or you know just design and also specification like products so that conversation with the public and with the design professionals really was what really inspired me to continue because i enjoyed looking at projects that were really impactful in the community and i also enjoyed the interpretation of code and not skewing it but really applying it to different applications and so when I started to get that code knowledge was when I really started diving into standards and understanding how different cities are adapting codes for their jurisdictions. And that whole animal is just super interesting as well, because everyone's using each other's codes as inspiration into all these different cities around the country. But then they're also molding it their own way because you've got your national codes, you've got the IECC, the International Energy Conservation Code, then you've got your state codes, and then you've got your city codes that are more stringent. It's just funny to see like how they're being applied. It's super interesting. Yeah. For our listeners that uh, may not be familiar with some of the code and standards, could you sort of summarize or give a couple examples of like categories, things that that you're looking at that will affect a building through standards and and code just to kind of uh, give people an understanding of what you would be looking at in this role? So just looking at it from top down, the codes are, the energy codes are split up by building system. So similar to construction codes where you've got a mechanical code, an electrical code, plumbing code, et cetera, the energy code is also split up into similar chapters, but it's by building system. So you've got your building envelope, you've got your mechanical, you've got your service hot water heating, um, and you've got electrical. And so in each of those systems, there are all these different subcategories. So in mechanical systems for the energy code, I might be looking at the equipment efficiency. I might be looking at the controls, set points, et cetera. For envelope, I might be looking at the window performance, how much heat is being lost, um, how insulated is the wall. So that's kind of where we go into with the wall system. Um, What are the materials that are being used? Do you have a continuous air barrier? For plumbing, I might also be looking at equipment efficiency and controls as well, but I'll also be looking at is is piping insulated. And then for lighting, we're looking at the fixture efficiency and we're looking at the controls. Are there automatic shutoffs? Do you still have lights on where there is daylighting, plenty of daylighting available, et cetera? So those are just a few examples. But I'll mention a couple of interesting things that are coming up now in the codes is electrical vehicle charging infrastructure and solar. With electrical vehicle charging infrastructure, some of the codes have this requirement to be EV ready where you have to have the conduits and the outlet so that if someone wanted to install a charger in the future, they have the capacity to. The solar aspect, some of the residential codes in these jurisdictions around the country have these solar ready zones where you have to have conduits, you also have to have a circuit breaker, and you have to have the space on your roof to install solar in the future should the next owner want to. California took it a step further and is requiring the actual installation. So not just that the zone's ready, but the actual installation of solar panels for new residential projects. So that's where all the the codes are trending right now and and also just electrification. So we see a lot of buildings now, a lot of states are on board with getting these buildings electrified to really be not dependent on fossil fuels, but focus on carbon emissions and and reducing the emissions. So that's where the, the how the codes are set up and then where they're trending. 
Yeah. Yeah. We used to have the loophole where you just had to be solar uh, ready and then provide the conduit, but they closed that, I want to say a couple of years right. ago now. Um, See, it's so dated. Yeah. See? <laughs> yeah so we, uh, we're so behind. Yeah. So I'm I'm super grateful that that you have the interest to tackle this uh, to tackle this role and to be involved. For someone that is also into the sustainability aspects and want to go down this path, is there a sort of recommendation to to pursue that this role, getting involved in the public sector or? or hurdles that that people can sort of avoid on their way to trying to get into the public sector, particularly for sustainability? So I think getting licensed and getting your certifications, you know, some of the more popular ones lead definitely helped me advance in government. Um, I think licensure is the best way to progress through government. I would say, though, that with government, I don't know that there are any hurdles necessarily. I think it's more that in architecture school, we're always taught more about the traditional role of an architect and we're always pushed towards these big name firms and government isn't really emphasized. Like I don't remember being informed about government positions, but what I did do is um, I had experience with internships and my first role was an internship in the public sector. And that's how I knew that I liked it because with the public sector, you get to collaborate with a bunch of different firms and different industries and you get involved in the policy and advocacy side. So I would say if you're interested in that aspect of it, the policy, the advocacy side, I think government's a great place to work because you have a crosshatch of all different minds that are working together. And inherently in a government agency, you don't have only the technical professionals, but you have the policymakers and those that are licensed to city hall and are making those changes. So you really get to be in a role to make these impactful changes. I'm lucky that I get to do both the technical side where I apply my license and be an architect, but then I help develop technical standards for public projects. I get to review products, speak with manufacturers about what's trending, what is high performance, and I get to stay on the cutting edge just because my work inherently is both technical and communications due to the government role. Yeah, do you need to be an architect for what you do? You definitely need to be an architect for what I do. That's because you need to understand codes and standards and you can't really make suggestions to technical standards unless you have an understanding of how a building operates or how it's designed. I would say that an engineer can also serve in this role with sustainability standards because energy engineering, of course, by far requires that knowledge. So in the standard sphere, and in sustainability and government, I, architects and engineers work shoulder to shoulder on these sorts of issues. And my role is involved into energy engineering in some aspects where I'm diving into certain aspects of systems that I didn't expect to, but should have knowledge of, and I'm still learning. Yeah. Before I let you go, any other things coming down the pipe, uh, news that you can break for us about the sustainability industry, things that, that you're watching that may be changing? Let me think about that one. Cause I, <laughs> I feel like I mentioned so many and now I'm like, wait, what did I leave? So I, I follow a lot of different outlets and truthfully I use Instagram to stay in touch with some of the updates. I'm very much into understanding grassroots projects and what local communities are doing for sustainability to, in order to stay on top. 
I do look at a lot of numbers and I'll listen to podcasts, but I would say that Instagram and podcasting is where I get a lot of my information on sustainability. And that's really more on the building sector. So I like to understand where the building sector is at as far as performance and what the codes are. The Building Energy Codes Program, their website has a wonderful archive of what's going on in the codes in different states. And so if you're interested in learning about these updates specifically, check out the Building Energy Codes Program. If you're interested in sustainability, check out some organizations that will help you bridge that transition into this particular specialty. I really like Climate Reality. It's a national organization with lots of local chapters and they strive to teach you about the basics of environmental science and include professionals from all different industries. So I've attended conferences where it's not only architects, but then you get to interface with other individuals and learn about sustainability and why it matters to them and that that will influence your work. And then there are a ton of volunteer organizations out there as well. Grid Alternatives is one where you can get involved in a solar PV install if you're into renewable energy. Great. If people want to follow along with you, I know you write as well. What's the best place for people to follow along with you? So on Instagram, I'm Renewable Farah, F-A-R-A-H. On Twitter, I'm Farah underscore A-R-C-H. I love getting involved in conversations with people on Twitter. So feel free to reach out. And then I have a website, www.farahnazamad.com. And on that, I have a tab for resources that will have a ton of sustainability organizations around the country if you're interested in getting involved. Thank you so much, Farah. And then we'll have all of those links in the show notes. Thank you to the listeners for listening. We'll talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. 
Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.